Episode number 16, Ronnie Burkett. Welcome back to the Title Block. I'm your host, Michael Cruz. It's been quite a few months since I saw you last. Uh, again, it's been quite busy during the semester, so I've been unable to get this uh, recording edited uh, for distribution. Uh, but I'm very excited to say that uh, I think that our guest will make up for that fact. Uh, for many, many years, Ronnie Burkett's Theatre of Marionettes has been delighting audiences, intriguing adults all over the world uh, with his extraordinary talent. And I have had the very good fortune to have had interviewed him in February uh, at his studio here in Toronto. Uh, I'm going to offer that up for you today. Uh, it's about a two, good two hours, almost, uh, almost two hours of an interview. And... Uh, it is quite comprehensive. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, there was a bit of traffic noise, and uh, I've been trying my best to get the sound quality better. I'm almost there. I'm almost there, but it hasn't quite, uh, not quite perfect. But anyways, it'll be fine. Uh, remember to check the show notes at uh, thetitleblock.com. Uh, you can follow along with the show notes. Uh, there's background material there that I've pulled from the internet about... Uh, um, puppetry and uh, Ronnie's background, uh, especially if you have interest, if you have an interest in uh, the history of puppetry. Um, coming up this weekend, I'm going to make a trip to the Shaw Festival to, to speak with uh, designers there about the upcoming season. So I'll be getting out uh, more of these podcasts over the summer. Uh, in the meantime, please enjoy this interview with uh, puppeteer, designer, playwright, uh, genius. Ronnie Burkett. Ronnie Burkett has had a 40-plus years career as a puppeteer, performing for thousands of audiences all over the world, and he has consented today to speak with me on the title <laughs> block. I'm very, very nervous about what it'll be fine. Um, Ronnie, welcome to the title block. Hello, welcome to my glamorous atelier. It's fantastic in here. <laughs> There's not too many puppets, everything's uh, sort of stacked away. No, can't have puppets around when I'm building. No. Oh, that's interesting. I don't want to see old work, you know? Right. I just want to look at what I'm working on. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, we'll get that in a second. Okay. Before we get there, All right. you are a puppeteer. I am. By trade. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, and you've been a puppeteer for a long time. Long since time. Since you were a Well, I started touring when I was like 14. You know? How did you get there, though? Were you, were you what, at what age did you realize you were going to be doing, you wanted to be Seven. working on it? Seven years old. Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, you know, during that year, uh, I saw The Sound of Music for the first time in a theater, and there was the Lonely Goat Herd sequence oh, yes. of the Bill Baird marionettes. And then my parents did what a lot of uh, middle-class parents did in those days. They bought the World Book Encyclopedia set, and I was bothering my mother one day, and she said, oh, go look at the books. So I randomly grabbed a volume. And it was the P volume. And no lie, it fell open to puppets. Oh, my God. And there wasn't a choir of angels singing in the background. But I looked at that and went, oh, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Wow. And, you know, family joke was always, why didn't it fall open to proctologist or podiatrist? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. you're talking to another end of you right yeah, now. Exactly. But, no, it felt, and I, I think, you know, looking back on it, I think... Um, 
I think the attraction from my adult view now was that here I instinctively saw a thing that encompassed everything little seven-year-old me was interested in. Making stuff, making stuff up, um, performing. So there was craft and performance. And I think I instinctively knew I could do it by myself because I was a loner. That's a lot to process over the years. I don't think I knew all that at age seven, but instantly I went, this, this is for me. Yeah. And did you, um, where did you go for other resources? Where, first of all, where did you, where were you born? Where were you raised? I, I grew up in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Right. And uh, so the only thing I could do was see some stuff on TV once in a while, you yeah. know, like uh, Super Marionation stuff from England. Uh, but it was the library. It was books gave me the world. And they had a pretty decent collection of puppet books, oddly enough, mm-hmm. that um, I just kept checking out repeatedly. So, um, you know, it's funny because I didn't actually see my first professional puppet show until I was 15 years old. And I'd already been doing mine for a year. Wow. And I had to get to the States to a festival to see them. Uh, So what I did early on from seven on is I just read and wrote fan letters. And so that's why, you know, and I'll make an expansive gesture that the listeners won't be able to see. (laughs) But there's 1400 puppet books here Mm -hmm. because it was through puppet books that I found the craft. And that's why I can, to this day, tell you 13 different needs joints or 18 different neck joints because all I did was memorize stuff as a kid. That's incredible. Um, Did you have the materials and support to make your own stuff and make those mistakes when you were a kid? Um, I made some early mistakes. Like uh, right after seeing that World Book Encyclopedia article, I went downstairs and and, uh, they had had a little diagram of how to make a marionette out of a broom. So at the age of seven, I took the saw in hand and cut the broom apart and put some (laughs) screw eyes in it and and got a really good spanking for cutting the broom apart. (laughs) And it was my first lesson in learning how impossible wooden doweling is. It's so hard. Um, So yeah, but you know, it's (laughs) funny at that young age i i instinctively knew that i was a child with no skill set and i wanted to make puppets like the ones i was seeing in the books so i think i made some sort of weird childish pact with myself that i would wait until i was of a certain age and could make good puppets and what i would do up until that point is just learn everything i could right history craft technique so i didn't make a lot of puppets as a young child Because I knew that they would look like a child's puppets, and I, right. and I had no interest in that. Isn't that weird? That takes a really a lot of self awareness too, because <laughs> there's a certain precociousness with kids; they can do anything. Yeah, and they just go ahead and make it, and well, everything it's is not beautiful. Like today, you know, you know, parents today. If if a child says. Huh, that's an interesting puppet. Suddenly they're enrolled in puppet camp and the, <laughs> the parents get them all the books and then they're writing the professionals saying, Come live with us to teach my child. My yeah. parents were like, What? Yeah. What? Whatever, you know. Um, it was only in my teen years that my parents really got on board, right? You know, but yeah. no, no, there was nobody around going, "What a great thing you're interested in, sissy boy from Medicine Hat." Right. No. <laughs> but what about the mentors? So you wrote fan mail. I did. did people write back? Uh, a, f- a few fools actually wrote back, <laughs> and and I took that as an entree into their life. So, uh, pretty much by the second letter, I was saying things like, "Look, I can come live with you." I will leave my family and come live with you now. Um, uh, but yeah, one guy in particular wrote back. Uh, they were all men. They were all older men, except for one 
woman who's still alive, who's Canadian, who was the TV puppeteer, Noreen Young, and she foolishly wrote back, and she's been stuck with me for over 40 years now, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and let me become um, a working puppeteer and a peer and a friend, but that took, you know, four decades for that evolution to happen. But yeah, I wrote a lot, a lot of fan letters, and, and they were with very pointed questions, you know, very specific questions, and interestingly, because I was such a little puppet knob geek and and memorized puppet books, including the history, by the time I actually got to meet some of these old guys in my teens, I could spout their careers back to them to the point of saying, you did, uh, you did 267 performances of Dick Whittington in 1932. <laughs> and they would look at me and go, what kind of freak are you? Right, right, of course. <laughs> I mean, looking, we're all looking for heroes, I guess, when we were a kid as well. But did you see these guys as heroes, or did you see them as a means to making your own Yeah, it's funny. I, 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 I gave a, a, a talk at a puppet festival once, and I was talking about this very thing. And, and I think I had an awareness really early on that it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to know them. I wanted to be them. And they had, I mean, this little scene in Billy Twinkle, which is a, which is a show I did about uh, a puppeteer having to look back on his life and having to reenact his life as a puppet show. But there's one little scene in there where little Billy Twinkle's at a puppet festival and meets his mentor idol, mm -hmm. uh, who is based on my chief mentor, Martin Stevens. But uh, there, there's such a, a desire in, in that character, and, and it came from me, to just say to these guys, I'm the next one, you have to help me. And, and that wasn't arrogance. I was not special. I didn't know if I was going to be any good at this, but I instinctively knew that if I was going to have a whack at it, they owed it to me to help me get there faster yeah. and not make their mistakes. Were there anybody else that was... Was there, was, were there any other children that were writing them these letters? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've met them all, you know, in midlife. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a little pack of us who meet at puppet festivals, and we're all the same age, and we were all little Billy Twinkles in our own way, you know. Um, but it's a pretty solitary craft at the best of time. And, uh, you know, this was before any of this connectivity with emails and Facebook or social media of any kind. You know, if you wrote a fan letter, you hoped in six weeks or six months, somebody would write back, yeah. you know? Uh, so it was a lot of waiting. But in a way, that waiting kept me going. I, I had to do stuff while I was waiting. Did you, were there any, um, I know when I was a kid getting into theater, there were uh, journals, specifically design journals, lighting journals, that would talk about the people working today. Was there any that, uh, were there those kind of resources to you, or was it all just uh, books that were more academic? Um, when I was, I think it was about 10 years old, uh, and, and the old books used to have lists of puppet organizations oh, yeah. uh, in England and in America. And, and that's an interesting thing about being a Canadian um, puppet kid or theater kid, I think, is the libraries were equally split between American puppet books and British puppet books. So I, interestingly enough, learned the technique of two different traditions. Right. Um, and not just a North American perspective. But, uh, yeah, I wrote to the Puppeteers of America when I was uh, 10 years old. I can't remember what the content of the letter was. It must have been a doozy yeah. because they gave me a free membership. <laughs> oh, wow. For my first year, a junior membership. Yeah. And what happened was you would get the puppetry journal every uh, two months, six times a year. And that was my lifeline. That was what was going on. That was who was working. That was photos that was technical stuff and that that just kept fueling me 
as opposed to a book that's kind of static and out of print. And to be honest, most puppet books are written by amateurs. So a lot of the information in those books is actual garbage. It doesn't work. Uh, but the Puppetry Journal and the Puppeteers of America really were my lifeline yeah. to the outside world. Now, given that, it, the fact that these, this is an interesting subject, that the, the books were not written by the people who you were actually trying to emulate. Right. Um, how did you find out about the 15 different knee joints and the neck joint? Like, how does that information get passed on? Well, you know, there would be... The first puppet book I actually owned was a British puppet book, the most uh, republished puppet book in British history. So uh, I, I got that book and, you know, analyzed his stuff and instinctively knew I didn't want to work in a British style. It always seemed a bit... Um, a bit clunky to me. I can't, there's no other word. It seems kind of not uh, refined. Right. Uh, I hope no British people are going to listen to this. Whereas North American <laughs> Very stuff. Very few people listen to this, so don't yeah, even okay. worry about it. <laughs> the North American stuff all came out of a specific period starting in the 20s onward, and there was a big renaissance, and everybody worked a certain way for decades, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, so I would just kind of, and it was down to materials too, you know. Um, I didn't have a bandsaw, mm -hmm. and I couldn't find this mysterious jointing material called trunk fiber. <laughs> you know, it took me 35 years to track down trunk fiber. I finally found it in Rexdale, of all places, <laughs> and they've closed down. So, um, you know, so it was about materials and, and level of complexi complexity and all of that stuff. Plus, another thing was happening, you know, when I was a kid, the Muppets were on uh, yeah. Ed Sullivan. Right. And then when I was in my late teens and had moved to New York to, to work professionally as a puppeteer for a marionette theater, Muppets went boom with The Muppet Show. So, you know, I, like the rest of my generation, suddenly went, let's make moving mouth things. And I'd done a lot of that in high school, too. So, um, you know, while I, my first years were all about marionettes, 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 my generation and, and technology was actually all about television puppetry. So I got sidetracked doing that. And that's easier to do. You can carve foam rubber or make a latex rubber head way easier in your parents' kitchen than you can carve a old world marionette. Oh, right. That's, that harkens back to the uh, Henson's taking his mother's coat and making yeah. Kermit kind of story. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're 13. You're considering, you've got all this information, and you're going to start building your first show. What makes you the decision? What, what, how did you come to the decision to do this for people? Like, how did you have that? What opportunity did you have? And how did you? Well, here's, here's kind of a watershed occurrence. My, um, my mentor, Martin Stevens, who I worshipped through the Puppetry Journal and through books, um, he, for many years had a correspondence course in puppetry. It sounds really dorky right now, but you would send him $30, mm -hmm. and once a week for 20 weeks, you would get a session from him. Okay, okay. Uh, but because he was a complete theater person, mm -hmm. and, and that's, of course, why I was attracted to him, you learned how to write you learned how to design. You learned the basis of drawing and design. You learned vocal production and technique. Plus, you learned how to make a counterbalance marionette, mm -hmm. how to paint scenery, how to book a show, what a sample contract looks like. And then session 20 was he would tailor it to you. You would write him and say, I want to know this stuff that you haven't addressed. Right. And then he would send you session 20. Unfortunately for the poor man, this, the course never ended because I just kept writing. And right. Then 
eventually <laughs> went to visit him and, you know, right. he was stuck with me. But yeah. that correspondence course, in all seriousness, um, is the uh, cornerstone of all my technique in terms of drawing, writing a script, vocal production. I've learned a lot since and I've learned a lot of other theories and techniques and uh, disciplines and exercises. But that odd little correspondence course in puppetry that I took when I was 12 years old really really set for me what puppet theater was about because for him it was all about the theater and performing for an audience and building these things to um, satisfy a script or a conceit of performance so suddenly it wasn't about just wanting to build stuff in the basement Mm -hmm. it was about the theater and making a show and having a point of view even yeah Um, and he posed questions like what is your definition of art and what is your definition of a puppet and I I remember saying to him I'm 12 I don't have and he said well borrow mine until you come up with a better one you know so um I think that was for me that period around 12 13 is when I realized it's theater Mm -hmm. And so I then decided I was going to, you know, make a show and uh, tour it around. What uh, what did you want to say when you were 13 or 14 years old? Was what were the stories you were telling? I I was, you know, I didn't uh, I didn't really have a point of view. Mm -hmm. And I I talk about this a lot. I don't expect young people to have a point of view. Mm -hmm. I I, I want we can talk about technique and all of that later Mm because I have a lot of thoughts on that. But, you know, I uh, I also knew I probably wasn't a very good writer at that time. But there was a woman who had um, had a script called The Patchwork Girl of Oz, an Mm -hmm. adaptation of one of those L. Frank Baum stories. And it was a little musical and a couple puppet companies in the States were doing it. And I asked her if I could do it. So she sent me the tape. Because in those oh, days right. you worked to a tape and I bought a reel-to-reel tape recorder and built a puppet stage and built all the puppets and I paid her $5 royalty for every time I did the show. And that was my first show. It was like a children's family show. Right. And after that I did a few things that I adapted like um, fairy tales and stuff like that. But that first show... You know, looking back on it, I had like probably the best hand puppet stage Canada's ever seen Mm -hmm. when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was getting gigs like the Alberta Teachers Association Conference in Edmonton. I was the guest performer at the age of 15, I think. So, you know, it was very funny. I didn't have a driver's license. My dad would pack up the car with my gear and off on tour we'd go. And I'd get that check for 50 or $75. I think the Alberta Teachers Association paid me 150 bucks, and, and I think that from my parents was a moment when they went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can make money at this. And at the Christmas season, you know, I was doing three Christmas shows at the Legion for different parties and Woolworths on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. And month of December in high school, I was making a lot of money doing puppet shows. And that's when my parents went, ah, Okay. <laughs> And what was your competition? I mean, were there there, there companies in Canada? Yeah. Well, in Alberta, uh, nothing. Mm-hmm. There, there was there were people teaching puppetry at the University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if that was through. Yeah, it was through the drama department actually. And um, a man named Larry Zirkel. And I was doing another theater conference as a teenager where I was performing. And he took my parents aside and said, get him out of this. He'll never have a career. You can't have a career in puppetry. You know, they told me that after the fact, years after the fact. But I was a willful thing. You know, I was. And again, I don't know if it if I had 
that much talent coming out of the box. There were, you know, in, in my late teens and 20s, there were, a lot, there were a few golden boys who got all the attention. I was not the golden boy. I, I'm the little engine that could, you know. I was just determined I was going to have this career. And now, tell me how you ended up in New York. So you're working in Alberta. You're working, you probably started working across Canada in your later teens? No, or... I, I was pretty much Alberta. Okay. Yeah. So how did you make the decision to break out of that? And I was, that I went to theater school at, oh, yeah. at Brigham Young University. Oh, right. all places. Now, what, how did you get there? Well, I was a Mormon for three years. Mm. You know, in high school, you either hang out with all the druggies or you hang out with the spirituals. And my high school drama teacher and my best friend were Mormons. And I went, oh, okay, I'll be like them. And I got a scholarship to go to Brigham Young University mm -hmm. and got there and went, oh, this is a huge mistake. <laughs> this is a huge mistake, <laughs> right. you know? And uh, apparently you don't tell the dean of fine arts to go fuck himself. Right. You know? So it was, you know, I was encouraged to maybe not stick around. Yeah. But uh, one night I... Uh, and I realized this was not my version of the theater because they were teaching people to teach theater. And I, and, and, and I wanted to be in the theater. There's a big difference, you know, and nothing against the people who teach who are amazing. But um, Bill Baird, who had made those uh, puppets I saw in the World Book Encyclopedia and who did The Sound of Music puppets, mm -hmm. had written a book. And I'd had that book since I was a teenager. And the last few paragraphs talk about, you know, we have to pass this on to the next generation. And my own son is making puppets now and it's our duty. And I wrote him a letter. I, I wrote him a letter saying, I, I, you owe me, I'm the next one. Mm -hmm. And I quoted his book back to him. Mm -hmm. And I had been writing Bill Baird letters since the age of 10, 12, 14, and never heard back from him. He mm -hmm. was the one I never heard back from. He was busy and famous too, sure, yeah. you know. Um, so I wrote him, I wrote Hanson, the same thing. And actually got a response from Henson about, you know, if you're ever in New York or London, come see us and, and that. Uh, and I quit university and heard about a, a puppet congress, International Puppet Congress in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And I got a job back home for six months, made enough money, and went to Moscow. In Moscow? What year was this? 76. 76. So it was still communist yeah. Russia. And I went on a tour package with a bunch of puppeteers, you know, um, uh, to this International Congress, which is another whole thing. I mean, talk about changing your view and your life and seeing, you know, um, Eastern Bloc state puppet theater shows with 400 people in the company. You know, I mean, just huge and beautiful. Anyway, so I was there, and I ran into Bill Baird, who's at the Congress. And he said... Um, I didn't have an address for you, but I've kept all those letters where you said you'd come live with me when you were 10 and 12. And so he, you know, he knew who I was. And he said, are you stopping in New York at all? And I said, yes, the, I have two days in New York after this before I go home. And he said, well, you come see me. So on my 19th birthday, I was in New York and saw my first Broadway show and uh, went to Bill Baird's theater and he hired me for his resident company of his permanent marionette theater in Greenwich Village. Wow. And so I went home for the summer and went back uh, and worked for him. That's how I got to New York. Interestingly enough, timing is everything because mm -hmm. the theater closed that <laughs> season. I was the last person he ever employed at the Bill Baird Theater. Right. Um, and 
And then I was in New York and I was in New York for a few years off and on and, you know, went to work for a woman named Bonnie Erickson, who had been uh, one of the head designers at Muppets. Bonnie made the first Miss Piggy. Mm -hmm. So I I had old school Bill Baird marionette experience working on a double bridge permanent theater. And then I went and worked in Bonnie's shop doing really mundane stuff. I was the low man on the totem pole, but I saw how foam rubber really worked and how you carve soft foam and flocking and all of this stuff. Stuff. And so that's that's how I ended up in New York. And then I was freelancing and doing all kinds of stuff. And, it, you know, here's the thing, Michael. When, when you grow up in anywhere in isolation, and I grew up in Alberta, and nobody was a puppeteer. Nobody mm-hmm. even knew what that meant. Not even my own family, really. Mm-hmm. And to tell you the truth, other than the books and the periodicals that came in, I wasn't really sure what that life looked and felt like. But to be... 19, 20, 21 years old in New York and your entire circle of best friends are puppeteers Mm -hmm. is is life-changing. You know, it just, it changed everything. Um, And suddenly I was part of a tribe. And that that was really important. And, you know, interestingly, uh, by the third year that I was there, uh, and I'd been going back and forth doing gigs in Canada and here and stuff, you know, um, I was walking down Fifth Avenue one day on my lunch break, and I ran into an old, old puppet enthusiast, uh, a guy who was the stagehand at the State Theater Mm -hmm. uh, at Lincoln Center. And uh, we got talking. We got talking about a puppeteer who had just died. And uh, and it it had come out that this guy was uh, sneaking in... uh, to the workshop he was working at late at night and building marionettes <laughs> because he was making television puppets. And, and he had been trained to make marionettes by my mentor. He was the generation before me. And he had died at the age of 50, mm-hmm. suddenly. And, and, and we were talking about how it was sad he hadn't realized his desire to do marionettes, really. And uh, I said to this old guy on the street that day, I said, well, that's all I want to do. And he mm-hmm. said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, because nobody's doing marionettes anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing this stuff. And every time I say in New York, oh, I'm going to do marionettes, people shoot it down. And he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from, I'm from Western Canada. And he looked me in the eye and said, then go back to fucking Canada and do marionettes. And a month, month later, I was back in Alberta. Right. And that's when I think the next phase started. Because I showed up in Alberta and people would say, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to do a marionette show. And the response was, cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Because <laughs> they were, yeah. No, was, no, you, well, yeah. you know that thing about cities. I, you see it in dance. You see it in design. You see it in everything. Where, you know, in major cities where there's a lot of activity in that particular thing going on, it does even... Even very subtly, it kind of gets trend-based for a while. Everything starts following a certain period or, or look, you know. And so to get away from the trend, I could just do whatever. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Now, the um, let me just back up for one second mm-hmm. just to talk about legacy stuff. The uh, there, there used to be, I'm not a big historian, but there used to be a number of permanent facilities across... North America did puppet theater, and those have largely disappeared, haven't they? Yeah, like there, there were never that doing... many. Okay. But there were a few, yeah. but yeah, maintaining. You know, running. Well, uh, like I'm running a theater company. Sure, really, yeah. uh, and that's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to run a theater company with a facility is, I, it's mind-boggling. Right. You know, um, same. I think in the '70s there was probably a lot of funding. We didn't know mm-hmm. it at the time, but mm-hmm. I think there was. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, there's very few places. There's a few in the States mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. There are a few. But, you know, in order to keep those going, you have to really, no matter how lofty you want a puppet theater to be, you do have to do, you know, the four to six weekend shows for the three to four year olds. Right. That's what keeps the puppet theater open. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, did you, when you started, uh, when you came back to Alberta, were you, let's talk about your audience for a second, were you doing theater for kids or did you make a decision to do theater for adults? I, uh, I came back and uh, the very first thing I did when I came back to Canada was, it was, what was it? Alberta's 75th anniversary, I think. Yeah. And oil rich Alberta had so much money to celebrate that year that I got a, a, a insane amount of money to do a TV special. Mm. Right. Because <laughs> I'd been working in New York making TV puppets. Oh, yeah, of course. So I was able to sell that. Um, it, man, it, was, it, it wasn't very good. Okay. I wrote it and designed it, and it was big, and a lot of really great people worked on it, and I hope it never resurfaces. Right. Um, but, you know, I set up shop with, with a business partner, and we were just going to do industrials and commercials. Right. And we did that for two to three years, um, and we would do, you know, corporate training videos for oil companies with gophers about how to right. use the fire extinguisher out in the field, that right, kind right. of stuff. Yeah. Um but I was also performing a one-man show that uh, uh, that was a bag stage. It was a backpack and a hula hoop with a curtain, and the puppets hung around my waist. Oh, okay. The plight of Polly Pureheart, and it was a genius show because you could do it in a kindergarten. Uh-huh. And I did it on armed forces tours for 500 men on the <laughs> Golan Heights. Who God. you know? I did it in nightclubs. Uh, and, and you literally could show up with this stage you wore and these four puppets and a kazoo orchestra around your neck. Yeah. And I did that show hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And one day I ran into Denise Clark and Blake Brooker, who, you know, are now One Yellow Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you should come down to this underground speakeasy mm-hmm. and do your show there on Saturday night. So I showed up with my little show in this um, in this booze can. And uh, the act in, before me was, um, his name's Peter Mahler. He's been a good friend for years and he's a, a percussionist. Peter had found an abandoned Coca-Cola sign and he was playing that with his drumsticks. And <laughs> right. I walked in and went, what the hell is this? And I did my little puppet show and they went nuts and suddenly... That was my new tribe. Mm-hmm. A new chapter begins, right. you know. And and so that's when I, you know, and I actually shared a house with Blake and Den- Denise eventually. I stopped doing a lot of TV stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hanging out with a bad underground art crowd. And uh, <laughs> and that's when I got back to this uh, desire to do a marionette show. Mm-hmm. And so the first show came into being because Blake Brooker wrote it, Fool's Edge. And uh, it Things just started. Oh, the other thing with that bag show, with the plight of Polly Pureheart, is you know, in that first year, I was hanging around with the rabbits and other people, mm-hmm. and it was the same time Brad Fraser was around, mm-hmm. you know, still, and and Stuart Lemoyne, and a whole bunch of writers and dancers and people that the legitimate theater in the country had kept away. And this is in Edmonton, right? Uh, Calgary and Edmonton. Calgary and Edmonton. But, you know, somebody from One Yellow Rabbit said, hey, there's this thing happening in Edmonton. We should go and you should you should apply and you should get a slot. And it was the very first Fringe Festival right. in North America. Yeah. And so I was there. Brad Fraser was there. Stuart Lemoyne was there. The Rabbits were there. Everybody was there. And we didn't know really what this thing was going to be. Yeah. 
And it worked. And so by the time Fool's Edge happened and I got a Canada Council grant to build that first Theatre of Marionettes show in 1986 and Alberta Theatre Projects programmed it as part of their summer season, then it went up to the fringe. And I think that's really when my career started. So when Theatre of Marionettes started in 1986, it was a whole new beginning. But I tell you, the timing couldn't have been better, Mm -hmm. you know, to start an odd company with puppets in it. Uh, because with the Fringe starting and simultaneously what was happening is a lot of regional theaters were opening secondary spaces. You know, um, MTC had the warehouse and on and on and on. But they had nothing to put in it, really, that was edgy. So they started shopping the Fringe festivals. And because I was first out of the gate with a full production, well, one of the first out of the gate, I got a lot of gigs at regionals. My first entree into the regional theaters Mm -hmm. was through the Fringe Festival. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Theatre of Marionettes started getting some traction and an audience nationally. Tell me about the the first Fringe, because this is important. This is important theatre history, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, And I'm, uh, I don't know enough about certainly the Edmonton Fringe Festival. What was it like being in that crowd for the first year? It must have been something subversive. It was, you know, and you have to understand too, because I really had only ever been a geeky puppet child, you know, and there's really, there's not much sexy about that, you know. So around that first <laughs> Says you. fringe, you know, <laughs> and I, I've come back from New York, so it took a bit to wash that attitude off me, yeah. you know. But so many things were happening, you know, the music scene was changing, you know, really punk music and all of that was infiltrating Canada and, mm-hmm. and, and fashion. And, and so around that first fringe, I realized that the puppetry could be different for me, that mm-hmm. I didn't have to be in the puppet ghetto, that I could be part of, God forbid I say it, an arts scene Mm -hmm. and stand my ground. And I didn't have to perform for children. I could perform at night for adults and talk about stuff more than, you know, uh, magic sausages and all of that. And so it changed me. Plus, you know, it was a huge coming out period, Mm -hmm. huge coming up period for me. So all of that married. So it was nightlife and it was culture and it was sex and it was underground. And it was an awareness that everything my mentors had done didn't necessarily have to be my career. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I I was opening for bands. Mm-hmm. You know, this little bag puppet stage was opening for bands, <laughs> of all things. And people were throwing lit matches in my <laughs> stage and throwing beer bottles at me. But, you know, I lasted more than any other opening act. You I know? Know that, eh? uh, so that, you know, that whole period was just, I think, because the Canadian theater had always been, when I was growing up, the Dominion Drama Festival mm-hmm. and Stratford. Mm-hmm. And that's all you ever heard about, right. really. And that was in the days when Stratford did tour in the off season. So, you know, in Alberta, you would see you would see the Stratford company with all the great stars of Stratford at the Jubilee Auditorium in um, in Calgary. But Canadian theater always seemed to be so plummy and British and not about the sex and cigarettes and beer that were my life at the time. And suddenly I was hanging around people who were talking about sex and cigarettes and beer and politics and and all of that. And it was really intoxicating. What year was this again? Uh, Just to give us some context. uh, You know, 
uh, I'm going to be wrong on this, but I'm thinking it was probably around 1984, okay. maybe three, four, yeah. five. Yeah. Theater Marionette started with the first Marionette show in 1986. I know that. So, yeah, it would have been maybe 84-ish. Um, and what about uh, one of the themes when I've spoken to people who were starting out their careers in the early 70s is that the idea of telling a Canadian story was a bit of a radical idea mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. then. Right? All of a sudden, there was money, first of all, to pay Canadian playwrights to tell Canadian stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this point, this had, by the mid-80s, this had been well-established. Um, but what kind of stories were you interested in reflecting the environment you were in? Were there stories that, that resonated with you that were not traditional puppet fare uh, that you wanted to tell? Like, how did you find your voice? Well, yeah. And I remember when I found my voice, actually, because the first theater of Marionette show, Fool's Edge, and then it was uh, The Punch Club and Virtue Falls in Awful Manner. So those first four productions were all uh, genre based. They were all musicals. Okay. So Awful Manners was a gothic thriller. Right. And uh, Virtue Falls was Victorian operetta spoof. And uh, Fool's Edge, the first one, was Commedia dell'arte. And Punch Club was about the Punch and Judy show and a feminist coming backstage to kill Mr. Punch. So so that was getting a little more earthy. But Mm -hmm. they were all musical and campy and funny and not anything to do with the Canadian experience of a, of a kitchen sink, you know, we got to sell the farm Bob right. story. Yeah. I'd seen enough of those, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. cause I was around when, you know, 10 lost years when it was on tour yeah. in the seventies changed my life because yeah. it was the first time I saw a Canadian story on stage and it was vibrant and musical and it was so exciting. But then, you know, we saw a lot of productions like 10 lost years and I went, I never need to see another Canadian story again. Yeah. Um, so I was doing these campy outrageous, things and I was the bad boy of puppetry and and they were very um, gay I guess and they were getting a lot of attention and then one day in my studio I picked up Bill Baird's book again the guy who had said you know we have to train our puppeteers and I knew that book inside out inside out but I was flipping through it again because that's what I do and there was a paragraph that I must have read a million times but it struck me and I was in my early 30s now And it was about Czech puppeteers who went underground during the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia and did these shows called Daisies Mm -hmm. and uh, how they passed the Nazi censors, but the public actually got the allegory of what they were talking about. And eventually the Nazis got onto them and, you know, 100 uh, Czech puppet theater workers were sent to the camps and killed. And in that moment, I remember that moment in my studio of thinking, holy crap, you know, People died for this. People put their life on the lines and used this art form. And it's not about, pardon me, it's not about the Muppet Show or selling laundry detergent or entertaining preschoolers or being some campy, outrageous gay boy. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a noble craft. And I need to reflect that. I have to reflect that. Simultaneously, AIDS had started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simultaneously, it was the beginning of the Reform Party's rise in Alberta. And there was a lot of wacky stuff being said by the right wing that was emerging really in Canada, Western Canada. And so I wrote this fable based upon the checks, but also hearkening to the time I was living in in Alberta called Tinka's New Dress, where there was a government called the Common Good and about a puppeteer going underground. 
And I remember when I finished writing it, I sat in the studio and sobbed for an entire day because I realized I'd written a career ender. Who would want to see this? Uh, so off I go and produce it and got some regionals on board to present it, sight unseen. And I had been building puppets that looked like puppets, you know, very broad, very cartoony, that whole puppet proportion of big heads, big hands. And for Tinka's New Dress, I, I went back to what my mentor did, which was naturalism. And I built really delicate, naturalistic, not realistic, but naturalistic puppets. Um, the script was written in a way that each scene was assigned a color palette in the script. So it went from light to dark emotionally and visually. It was the first time I really crafted something that way. And it was the first time I had improv sections in a show. And when Tinka premiered, a bunch of people said to me, wow, you've changed your style. And I remember saying, no, I found my style. And just while we're talking about design overall as a thing, you know, when I was very young, Martin Stevens, my mentor, had a line that makes more sense to me every day, which was style isn't something you set out to get. It's something you get when you set out. I used to complain that I had no personal style when I was 13. And he's like, you can't. You've got to copy. Copy Baird. Copy me. Copy that guy. Copy it so you can sculpt like them in your sleep. And at some point, he said, I promise you, you'll look at the work and go, that's more you than them. And around Tinka's New Dress is when I finally made puppets that I, I didn't recognize where they were from. I, so I, I think they were mine, finally. Yeah. And, and Tinka actually was what gave me an international career. It got me the most attention, it got me to New York, it got an Obie Award, it toured for eight years on and off with other shows. But taking that risk, because it was about the times I was living in, mm -hmm. was what really paid off, mm -hmm. you know. But I had to go through all that other nonsense to get there. To get there. That's sort of a classic art story as well. Yeah. Um, now, you found your voice... How did you find your audience? Was it ready to go? Did you have to lead them along? Was it important? How important was marketing? Like, did people buy in immediately or was it A lot of people did buy in immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I've said for a long time, I think Theatre of Marionettes could have only happened in Canada. I, I don't know why, but um, I was never interested in um, an audience that goes to puppet shows. Mm -hmm. I was only interested in a theater-going audience. Um, also, around that time when I started hanging around with the bad theater kids in Alberta and the Fringe Festival and all of that, and I was formulating Theater of Marionettes, I did something quite uh, shocking, actually. I left all puppetry organizations, and I disassociated myself with puppet groups and really other puppeteers mm -hmm. because I realized if I was going to get this work into the theater, I had to be a theater person. I had to talk the theater. I had to talk playwriting. I had to talk theater design. I didn't want any of this puppet rubbish. Mm -hmm. So I left puppetry for 18 years, um, which probably had a bit of arrogance associated it to it too but I just instinctively knew I had to get away from the influences again mm -hmm. and, and see where this where I could define myself in this, in this new thing that was happening, this new kind of theater explosion that was happening. And, and, and I saw that there was room for me in that, you know. In terms of the audience, I think because of the fringe thing, you know, I got a lot of buzz from that. 
I, I don't know. It was pretty easy. I, I hate to say it, but, you know, Tinka's New Dress played played Canadian stage for eight weeks, yeah. you know, <laughs> eight weeks <laughs> for a puppet of, show, you know, and show. I had a lot of those kind of runs and suddenly shows were selling out. Um, I don't really know what that's about. Michael, I don't. I, I think maybe it was content. I think it might have been part of that thing of people wanted stories about what they were feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, again, tied into the time it happened. You know, when I went to, uh, when they used to have the Jim Henson Festival in New York, that, you know, uh, they didn't want my work early on because they didn't want classic marionette shows. Oh, right. You know, and I felt that. I felt that kind of who does marionettes anymore. And uh, so when Tinka got there, I think Tinka was the dark horse. Mm-hmm. And Tinka became a huge hit mm-hmm. and then got the Obie. And, and I think it was my way of saying to American puppetry, I'm not, I'm not doing your daddy's marionette show. You know, I don't turn a tape recorder on. I'm up there. It's live. It's about something. It may fail because I'm taking a risk. But I think in certain sectors, you know, you say, oh, I do marionettes, and they just turn right off. And, it, and, and I talk, which is really hated by a lot of European puppeteers. Okay, so wait a second. So the <coughs> traditional, and I just got this now, when you're talking about using the tape before, you're actually playing someone else's re-record, has pre-recorded the voices, yeah. and you're just... You jiggle. Doing a dumb... <laughs> you jiggle. Yeah. I was going to say you do a dumb, dumb show. show. Yeah. yeah. Um, so choosing to speak your own words is a bit of a radical departure as well. I suppose it was in puppetry at that time, but it wasn't in the theater because you don't go on stage in the theater and move your mouth to a pre-recorded thing. So that's why I had to get away from the mindset of puppetry, you see. And, And everything I did in terms of my work had to be about, you know, the theater. And, and here's the thing. Once I, once I was working in the Canadian theater, once those regionals put me in their secondary spaces, and then, you know, a few years later was putting me on their main stages, um, I was surprised how welcome I was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think I... I actually think I have it better than anybody in the Canadian theater for mm-hmm. one reason, because of all the aspects of puppetry that I had to learn and keep learning, I can walk into the carp shop and talk their language. I can walk into wardrobe and completely be a costume designer. I can walk into the dramaturg's office and talk about playwriting. Actors are very nice to me, Mm -hmm. you know, very Mm -hmm. nice to me uh, because I interpret text with an acoustic voice. Mm -hmm. So I get to go anywhere, any shop in the Canadian theater I get to hang out. The ones who've probably embraced me the most are playwrights. Mm-hmm. I would say my my dearest and deepest friendships in Canadian theater are playwrights. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably because they work in a kind of isolation that they understand it in the puppetry world, you know. Um, but that's why I say it could only have happened in Canada, you know. And, and in Eastern Bloc countries, I would have been relegated in a puppet theater to just be a designer or just be a performer or just be a craftsperson, you know, and... I think because of the Wild West attitude of how it's done in North America, I've just had to kind of learn how to do a bit of everything. Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember seeing Tinka's new dress with Kathy Nasadi. She invited me one day. I guess it was a uh, come back to Kent stage or something. Mm. And um, I remember it was very accessible. Like it wasn't. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, mm. obviously, but there were 
things that you could hang on to so you didn't feel seasick, like this is a completely new experience, mm-hmm. but it was there was an, there were enough things about it that were completely new to me. Um, and the ability to... Uh, it What surprised me about the entire experience was the ability to... Uh, to oh, what's the word? Excuse me. It was my, it was it was the ability for the audience to understand mm. the puppet was to to project their ego mm-hmm. on the puppet, and it wasn't it wasn't something that was beyond the fourth wall. Right. It was very accessible that way, and so very moving. Um, let's talk about the next trajectory. So Tinka's. Tinka's new dress made sort of made your new choice in yeah. your career. Um, and where did you go from there? Like you have told stories that are, uh, they could be put on stage by not marionettes. They yeah. could be performed by live actors. Tinka emboldened me. And the fact, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm my father's son. I'm a middle-class prairie boy, you know. I think if I if I felt I was doing important work, but 7 to 13 people a night were coming to it, I, I wouldn't be doing this still. Um, I have to play to a full house. Um, and I'm used to playing to a full house. And I'm, I'm shocked when I don't. And I blame marketing and publicity because I know I can play to a full house pretty much anywhere. And that's not arrogance, you know. Uh, and if as long as marketing and publicity do their job and let people know I'm there, yeah. they come yeah. for some reason. Um, so the fact that people kept coming and came enthusiastically and got over the form actually, and went right into content mm-hmm. at some point, mm-hmm. emboldened me. And, and so I realized other things were important to me. And so I never, I never had a, a, a career plan thinking, well, after Tinka, we'll do Return of Tinka and Son <laughs> of Tinka and Tinka Shines Again. Mm-hmm. I got this stupid idea about the contaminated blood scandal in Canada and the Red Cross scandal and the second coming of Christ. And, and that's where Street of Blood came from, which was even a bigger hit than Tinka in Canada. Um, And again, I sat on that studio couch and sobbed, thinking, oh my God, I've just ended all the goodwill I've made with Tinka's new dress. Now I want to do this stupid thing where I play Jesus and (laughs) vampires. And and in Canada, it really resonated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it taught me a lot about the Canadian audience, is don't have any preconceived idea about us. I let it all go then. And anybody who says Canadians are this way doesn't know the Canadian audience. They, you know. So that emboldened me. And and I just, I remember one day at YPT, uh, I was working on a show. um, And we were talking about someone in the theater community who had died um, by their own hand. And we were talking outside at the stage door about what is this thing about happiness, you know? And why is it uh, some people can hit grief and it's like a wall they keep hitting and some people just get buried under the wall and some people find a way to climb up over the wall and I took a drag of my cigarette and said to the person I was with, oh crap I just found a show and that's how happy came Mm -hmm. you know it's a fun cue (laughs) (laughs) so I think I just was uh it was a really fertile period of having ideas and building these big 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 shows and audiences coming, you know. Um, and I really don't think I've ever explored the solo performance 
to its max. And a lot of people say, are you ever going to work with someone else on stage? And, and it's not arrogance, but no, I really don't want to do that. I, because I think part of the charm has always been, no, I know this. And I think from Tinka certainly on, um, the earlier shows might have had a sort of handmade quality to them that audiences liked seeing. But around the time of Tinka and onward, I think an audience could sit down and see this show, whether they agree with it or not, and go, okay, that's this guy's point of view. He believes in this. This is his take on the world. He shrunk the world. He made the world. He wrote the world. He designed the world. And he's up there every night doing that. And I think there's something about seeing that level of uh, ownership on stage that was very attractive to people. We see more of that now. You know, the theater's changed again. From what I see, we see a lot of young theater artists doing a lot of stuff on stage. So, um, but you have to realize when Theater of Marionettes was emerging, there still wasn't a lot of that. You know, there was Danny McIver, certainly, but Danny wasn't building his clothes and his right. setting. Still a collaboration Exactly. But it was of the same thing where it was a solo performer and you didn't know what was personal experience and what was from the cauldron of bullshit, you know. Um, And I think that was very attractive to that audience, certainly in the um, late 80s and through the 90s when, when things were shifting here again. All right. So, uh, as I've spoken to some people in the past, the uh, failures are often just as important, even more important than the successes. Mm-hmm. So was there any point where you found yourself just having lost the plot and uh, and, ha- and what did you learn from that? Um, I, I th- you know, well, that's there's so many answers to that, Michael, <laughs> because there's as a performer and there's as a writer. Right. Um, I think the thing that I experimented most with and still do was in the actual design and fabrication of a marionette. Because beginning and end of the day, I make my instruments, you know, and, and, and they are not um, magical, holy creatures to me, as some puppeteers believe. They're instruments, yeah. and uh, you need to fine-tune an instrument. So, uh, you know, some techniques I've used for building and construction just didn't work for me. Um, and, and that might be because of how we approach materials or, or stuff. But I'm constantly experimenting and refining. I mean, I will look at whole past shows and think, oh, yeah, that's when I made everything that way. And Billy Twinkle, for example, was a great um, example. It was the first show where I was that much of a character. I was the central character, mm-hmm. Ronnie, acting as Billy Twinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt really exposed. After two years of doing that show, I thought, this is not necessarily what I want to do. And I was looking around at puppetry as a whole. And you can't swing a cat now without hitting the puppeteer's face. Everybody's right there with the puppet. Yeah. And it caused me to think, have we given up on on the puppet Mm -hmm. of being able to hold the audience and tell a story. And I thought, well, when I started and I was in view the whole time, I intentionally deconstructed old technique and put myself out there. Mm -hmm. So the audience wouldn't wonder what I was doing behind the screen. Right. It was like, okay, here I am. Here's the control. You see my mouth moving. And I could always tell five or 10 minutes into the show, the audience's focus go down to the puppet realm. Mm-hmm. So that was a deconstruction of form for a reason. But of course, now everybody's out in the open. Yeah. 
And they are out in the open without having gone through the classical stages of doing a hand puppet show hidden in a booth or a marionette show hidden by a proscenium. They're just out of the gate, visible. And and trust me, most young puppeteers don't have the theater chops to be visible. Right. You know, being on stage is always a privilege. It's not a right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but try and tell the current crop that, uh, <laughs> but, which I do try and tell them. Yeah. Uh, but Billy Twinkle, you know, I was out there a lot. But also I decided because it was a show about a puppeteer doing a puppet show, the puppets should look like puppets. So mm-hmm. I abandoned this naturalism I had been designing in and made a whole bunch of puppets with big heads and some moving eyes. And I hated it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I look at those puppets and go, that really, that was a bad detour for me. Right. They're nice as what they are. Yeah. And it was a f- beautiful show, I think, in terms of the scenic design, certainly. But I, I couldn't wait to get back to what what I thought my style was. But, you know, you have to go off track a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the next show was um, Penny Plain. Mm-hmm. And I was more out of the action than I'd ever been. I was up in the shadows. I was never really lit except for one little sequence. Mm-hmm. And it demanded of the puppets in the audience that the whole show was being done by puppets on strings with mm-hmm. 100 inches of string. Mm-hmm. And and it was it was liberating for me. Because I realized if your technique is good, they don't, it's the best way to show off. Yeah. Right? If the puppet is really sucking the audience into that story, they don't need to see Ronnie down there mugging and, and overacting and telegraphing. Right. If they think the puppet's doing it, that's my best way of showing off. Sure. That's terrific. All right. And let's, let's just talk about uh, the Daisy Theater, which is, the new, which is your newest... Uh, work how that's a departure from the narrative yeah. pieces that you've done in the past how did you come to that point what do you like about it what freedom does it give you as a performer the first you know the first incarnation of the daisy happened 20 years ago mm-hmm. and happened at one yellow rabbit as an experiment as a lab because mm-hmm. i'd written tinka's new dress that we mm-hmm. talked about but twice in tinka's new dress we saw the underground puppeteers show mm-hmm. and i thought okay for this to be relevant every night i'm going to have these stock characters and i become the underground puppeteer mm-hmm. and i'm going to improv those sections mm-hmm. to make them really relevant and i realized after i'd written tinka i didn't know how to do that so <laughs> we made a right. sort of little makeshift quick marionette stage and I just got to build a bunch of puppets I cannibalized old puppets and characters appeared within 36 hours and I booked the theater I think for a month and and I just started improvising a two-hour show every night right and it just became so successful people were coming three times a week to see this thing you know and then I did it again the next season for another month I think and, and then, uh, you know, started touring Tinka and then Street of Blood happened. And so I, I didn't do it. And for years, people were saying, you're going to do the Daisy Theater again. I said, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's the dominion of an angry young man with opinions. <laughs> and I'm not that guy anymore. And then I, it, it dawned on me that I, you know, after doing all of these dark, very heavy shows that mm-hmm. I'd done for two decades, I, I just wanted to have some fun. Mm-hmm. You know, Penny Plain, uh, I had a very... Uh, very famous older Canadian actress take me aside and say, I worry about you going into that darkness every night. <laughs> and, and, and I said, Oh, I'm fine. I have a flashlight. You know, that's, <laughs> that's always been my motto. I run into the dark, but I go, I have a flashlight. Yeah. Follow me. But she was kind of right. And I thought I need it to be fun. Yeah. And then the opportunity came through the Luminato festival to create something as a later night thing during the festival. And I thought the Daisy, mm-hmm. let's, let's revisit this. So, I built a whole new cast of characters and designed a new little stage. And 
actually remember saying to my agent, don't, don't sell this. Mm -hmm. This is just for this festival. This is not going to be what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know? And the minute I started doing it, I thought, oh, there's, there's some life in this. And again, there was a kind of audience reaction to it that, that I listened to. And so Daisy went on tour Mm -hmm. and it went to Edmonton for eight weeks and sold out in Vancouver for five. And, and I was seeing something in the theater that I wasn't seeing even in my previous work. Mm -hmm. I was seeing half of every audience was under 30 years old Uh and half of every audience, it was their first time in a theater. Wow. The buzz was, you should go see this show. It's fun. Because mm-hmm. there was no danger, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about the Holocaust or the second coming of Christ <laughs> right. or the end of the world or any of the other <laughs> right. mirthful topics That's, I've been known for. Yeah, you know, I yeah. demanded an audience to come and bear down with me for yeah. a couple of hours. And God love them, a lot of them did. But mm-hmm. with the Daisy, it just kind of became a, a fun thing to do. Right. And... Uh, and it was the first time in my career where I started calling people up from the audience to do stuff. Right. And I started that tentatively with a guest puppeteer every night to right. work a puppet. But in the current version of the Daisy, three to five times during the show, I'm calling different people up. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's insane mm-hmm. that Mr. Control Freak, who only works alone, <laughs> yes. suddenly is, you know, saying, you, come up here right. and and do this. And, and I kept waiting with the Daisy. Then the first season it was touring, I kept waiting for the lesson of the Daisy. Because the first Daisy gave me three characters that went on to be in scripted shows. Right. So I thought in this lab of all these characters that I just randomly built because they excite me... Um, Maybe one of those will be the next breakout character for a scripted show. And that didn't happen. But I realized the lesson was what I want to do for the next scripted show is include the audience in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. In a completely written text-based piece, bring the audience into the action to do stuff. Right. Not in an improv way. And and that was really interesting. You know, for me, as as a builder and as a designer, certainly, and then a performer, the Daisy gives me such freedom because... You know, normally as theater designers, we, we, we have a script and we have to honor that. Mm-hmm. So there has to be an overall look and uh, certainly in a puppet show, then that look is decided. And, you know, you have a sculptural sense or a palette for the costumes and, and you follow that through for the whole thing. And with the Daisy... they don't have to make sense with each other, you know? So if I come up with a, with a lady cow, I just get to make lady cow and then I can build, you know, this character. And somehow the Daisy works by throwing them all together and seeing how they interact. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there is an overall design sense with the Daisy and I made some rules for myself about what the design sense of the Daisy was. Mm -hmm. But once that was set, I can go anywhere. Can go anywhere. So let's let's step off from there and talk about your process. Um, you are are you a writer first and a puppeteer second, or is it indistinguishable? Do you write the script first with characters in mind and designs <laughs> and looks, or is it just sort of random? Uh, I I don't know if it's random, but I don't think there's a rule. You know, I've worked with Iris Turcott for years as mm-hmm. my dramaturg. And what I love about her is, and she works with the same group of people repeatedly mm-hmm. over the years. Uh, but she doesn't believe there's a methodology of 
of dramaturgy, and she doesn't believe that even if you've worked with somebody many times, you have the same vocabulary for mm. every project, that mm. the project establishes the vocabulary. And I think that's true in terms of design or writing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so to answer your question, I remember usually before I draw or sculpt anything, I've got a first draft of a script. Okay. Uh, but I remember on one show, on Provenance, I was stuck in the writing, and yeah. I was working with Iris on this, and she was dramaturging me, and she got frustrated with me and said, stop writing. Stop writing for six weeks. Go sculpt the heads. You need to see these characters so you can do their voices. Because mm-hmm. I write out loud. I do it in voice, because I know who's going to be saying the words, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm setting the rhythms out loud as I'm writing. Um, and that taught me a lesson. On, on uh, Penny Plain, before I did anything else, before the writing really was able to go anywhere, I had to make the set model. Because oh, wow. in the writing, I couldn't figure out where things were happening or how I got bogged down and how am I going to stage that, Mm -hmm. you know? So I made the set model and then I was able to envision everything that was happening in the show. So Mm -hmm. it's different, but for me, it's all one thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it really is part and parcel of the same end goal, which is to bring these characters to life on stage. And so sometimes I have to envision the character first, Uh, like for the new show that I'm, working on for the next couple of years. It's a slow process on this one. I'm, I'm just going to build characters slowly as I write slowly. And I've never done that before. I've never like finished a puppet and then maybe gone and workshopped that puppet mm-hmm. on its own for a while. Mm-hmm. But that interests me right now. And the, the, I think of the essential thing, just talk about the actual puppets. Mm. Um, the biggest difference to straight theater is scale. So how do you decide how big or small it should be? Mm-hmm. It has to be big enough, obviously, to play a house, has to be small enough to manipulate, but mm-hmm. where is the, how do you find that balance, and how do you um, make that scale, how does that affect your choices mm-hmm. uh, in proportion and shape? Well, and the other thing, too, you know, that that makes it, it's, that veers it away from just the human theater is none of it exists. Right. The great thing about puppet theater is you can imagine anything, anything. The downside of that great thing is that then you have to build it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the human theater, you cast it, those people live, and then you put some clothes on them and put them in an environment and you throw some script into their hands and boom, you got a show. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't mean to dismiss the human theater as <laughs> no. being that easy because we know it's not. Yeah. But uh, I start with nothing, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, going back to, to those books when I was a kid, the, the British standard scale was three inches equals a foot. So a six-foot oh. tall man would be an 18-inch puppet. Right. I knew that was too small for me. Uh, the standard North American or American size when I was a kid, certainly through the 20th century, was four inches equals a foot. Mm-hmm. So a six foot tall male puppet would be 24 inches. And those were the scales that I knew. And as I was coming up to Theater of Marionettes and that first show, I thought, oh, I don't, I think 24 inches is a bit small for a six foot tall man. And, mm-hmm. and, and I had been on a, a tour um, to Germany and went to a puppet museum there and I saw the work of a guy who who it's funny I, when I teach I talk about find a dead mentor you know mentors who inspire you from the grave mm-hmm. this guy was one of my dead mentors and I saw his work in the puppet museum in Munich mm-hmm. and lo and behold there was my answer it was roughly five inches equals 
a, a, a foot mm-hmm. scale, which doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. But since that day, theater of marionette standard scale has been five inches equals a foot. Right. It's 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 just slightly bigger mm-hmm. uh, without getting too unwieldy. I I I'm not like everybody else right now with with all of this big is better mm-hmm. thing. I hate big puppets, uh, so I'd like to keep them small. Um, I would never want to get bigger. So there's the scale set, okay. you know, and and so everything else is scaled around that. Do, does that um, set an upper limit on the size of house you can play? It does, you know, and it's funny. Right before the Daisy Theater, what I noticed was happening. Our whole trajectory was to get legitimate, you know? Right. I guess when you're illegitimate and they keep you at the stage door and say, you can't come in, puppet vagabond, right. you know, that you get in your head, you're going to be a legitimate artist. Yeah. And, you know, I, I played a penny plane in the main theater at the National Arts Center. It was 800 seats. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that they made that choice. But I felt during that run, I felt the audience was too distant. And I felt that they felt far away and couldn't right. see anything, yeah. you know. And then to do the Daisy right after, which was in smaller rooms, never bigger than 150 seats usually, I, I got that part of the excitement in the room was because people could see everything mm-hmm. and, and we could smell one another. Mm-hmm. And so that changed my desire for that kind of legitimacy. I mean, I played theaters in Europe that are 1,200 seats, but they only sold the first third because it was so big, you know. So unless I scale up and do Lion King and War Horse scale stuff, which doesn't interest me, Mm -hmm. yay for that work and yay for that brilliance of those people. Mm -hmm. But for me, it has to be small Mm -hmm. because I'm shrinking the world and examining it. Um, So I actually think what's going to happen in the next phase is smaller work. And there's also a, you know, this trend starting in Canada slowly, which is which is much bigger in the states, ninety nine seat theaters mm-hmm. and storefront theaters, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in more self production, and I'm interested in smaller rooms, and I see that a lot of regionals are having trouble filling these real estate barns mm-hmm. that were built. Yeah. And I think the future of the theater is in small rooms. And uh, if you read any of the marketing and surveys with audiences, audiences want a smaller, more intimate experience, you know? And so I think I might even go a bit smaller on the puppets uh, if the room is small enough, because I'm more interested in delicacy right now Mm -hmm. and, um, and the quiet in Mm -hmm. a story Mm -hmm. than the bravado been there did that. Um, but yeah, I, I want to see what smaller feels like yeah. in terms of the experience of the audience, because that it took me forever to learn this. And I think the greatest lesson of the Daisy is I go to work for one reason, the audience. Mm-hmm. It's not about my lofty ideas. It's not about my soapbox, all those things you believe when you're young. Yeah. And I did believe those things, yeah. you know, um, And a lot of people will blow smoke up your ass when you're young, if you're getting some attention. So you start believing it. But no, I'm in the service industry. Mm -hmm. And when I go to work, I'm like a waiter or a bartender or a hairdresser or anybody who's in the service industry. They've plopped their money down and it's my job to take care of them for the time we're together. Yeah. You know, Um, and I like that. Yeah. We had a, uh, you may be interested, we, the the last um, title block was about was a forum that was held down at uh, Pass Mariah about uh, shrinking audiences mm. and what to do about it. And it seems like uh, in the past year, uh, I had a discussion with Ron Jenkins, and I think I've probably told this story on the podcast, but I'm going to tell it again, um, that I feel like the audience 
everyone feels special. Everyone feels they are special. There's mm-hmm. a sense of entitlement. And you mm-hmm. can fight against that or you can just accept it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and give them what they want to ensure that they come back. And um, theater, because it's not... Film and uh, television are good, are great at some things. Mm-hmm. Um, details, small stories, uh, locations, lots of locations, telling multiple, you know, uh, a narrative that takes place in multiple places. Uh, and the kitchen sink drama is kind of what film and, you know, TV for some certain sake does very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but theater, to make theater a boutique experience, to find out what works well only in the theater, mm-hmm. um, I think is probably the key to its future. Yeah. And, 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 and it sounds like that, like all these themes keep coming up, this idea of drawing people in and making a smaller experience that is more special. Well, to you know, I, I was talking earlier about all the advantages I have, which, which, which I celebrate and I don't take lightly of, you know, I can go into the carp shop and talk or I can go into the wig room or I can go up into marketing. And because I'm running my own theater company and having to do all these roles, you know, I can go anywhere in the theater and have a chat with people. Mm-hmm. But um, I have the biggest advantage I have. And the thing that's frustrated me the most is... I see the audience every night. Mm-hmm. I watch them come in. I go up for a smoke at the half hour. I watch them come in. Mm-hmm. I sniff them out. You know, I peek <laughs> through the curtain. Um, uh, and then I am in the room with them. And with the Daisy Theater, they're on stage with me sometimes. And so uh, a lot of artistic directors and a lot of general managers don't bother to be in the building at night. So when I say to them, oh, my God, I did a head. I said, how many are you virgins to the Daisy tonight? Right. And three quarters of the room put up their hands. I started doing my own marketing research just because I'm there every night. And I find a lot of people who are managing real estate, barns, as I call most regional theaters now, Mm -hmm. aren't in the building past five o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. You know, as someone who is in the building and who wants to keep going to the building every night. Uh, I want that experience as much as the audience. I want that intimacy, you know? And it's funny, in terms of design for the next show that I was telling you about, um, I I want it to be for 70 to 100 people a night. Mm -hmm. And to the point where it's about the loss of language and and how language is replaced by emoticons and, 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 you know, tablets and all of that. And I realized at one point I want to really move the audience around. Everybody gets a puppet when they come in. Mm -hmm. They become the mass. They become the crowd. And on that puppet will be sewn a symbol inside the hand puppet. And if you have this symbol, you go sit over there. And separating people and controlling them in that way. But also, I realized what I want to do is uh, separate people by who has a device in their pocket. And then getting three or four of those up with their flashlight app and lighting the scene while I'm doing it, you know, rather than say, this is all wrong that's happened to us, let's utilize it and let's light a marionette walking through the space and you walk with me and light it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that excites me as much as when I first wrote Tinka's New Dress and it excites me as much as when the World Book Encyclopedia opened up, you know, because... Uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this is a good thing. When it all changed, when we lost our big funding in this country, when foreign affairs didn't fund cultural export anymore, when Europe died, basically, and mm-hmm. the Euros trashed, and it all changed in the last five years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the career I had, and we bemoaned it and freaked out about it. Yeah. Um, 
if I had just kept in the loop of every two and a half years building a new show, taking my crew of three out in the road with me, playing the same places, I, I thought that's what my career would be. Mm-hmm. But it all changed. Mm-hmm. And like the young theater artist just starting out, trying to figure out how to produce, how to get an audience, believe me, I'm doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And so for me, the Daisy Theater was an entree into a new way of looking at it and coming back to text work and coming back to those audiences who've followed me, but saying, follow me here now. Mm-hmm. Follow me. And, and they want it. They want, they want that intimacy, mm-hmm. you know? That's terrific. Okay, so how about creating how about creating the design for the show? So you've got some sort of script together, mm-hmm. or at least an outline. Um, do you... Uh, you say you use the techniques you used that you learned when you were 12. Yeah. So uh, floor plan, 2D drafting, do you render first? Is it, uh, is it just a sketch? So what I do on brown craft paper at yeah. my drafting table is I draw the character full size. Okay. And I draw it front and I draw it side profile and I line up all the joints and I'm very specific. And that's a full size working template. Right from the beginning. There's no sketches or anything. Oh, there's sketches. I've got sketchbooks and I doodle in hotel rooms and all that. So by the time, you know, I've got the the show and some version of a script and uh, and know the characters and and some doodles, Mm -hmm. then I sit down and, and I design the characters. And that becomes, you know, I, I do most of it myself. I don't build the clothes and I have a lot of people come in and help me do various things. Mm-hmm. So that becomes uh, the map, you right. know, because if I don't figure out exactly the, uh, with my little circle template, what that knee joint circle is and the circle inside of it that the pin goes through at mm-hmm. the drafting table, I know by the time I'm making 35 puppets that's 70 legs right you know i i'm going to be too tired and too stressed and there's an opening looming um i don't want to sit down and figure that out in the woodshop i want to look at the drawing and go okay it's five, 15 sixteenths of an inch with this in the middle and mm-hmm. okay just drill it there yeah you know and also if anybody's in the shop i can say well this is the stance of the character when we're stringing it up so this and then that drawing gets um, taped up behind the stringing stand, right. and you can see the posture right. that's that was determined from the beginning, because you know it takes a long time. A show usually takes a full year to build in the studio, mm-hmm. and that's every day, because from those drawings, then then you cut out the um, the arms and legs from wood, or mm-hmm. you cast the bodies, then you or you you sculpt them, you make molds, then you cast them, then you cut them apart, then you put them back together, and mm-hmm. then you put the joints. In. It's just factory work, Mm -hmm. you know, and building a puppet show, people say to me, how long does it take to build a puppet? Well, I don't really know. It's been so long since I've built a puppet from start to finish. Right. Um, I can tell you roughly how long sculpting that many heads would take. And then the mold making process is another probably two to three weeks and then casting. And Mm -hmm. I know exactly how long carving 35 puppets will take, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's a lot of work. And and it's only fun at the beginning and near yeah. the end. Yeah. Because when you're designing them and envisioning them and swatching the fabrics, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. And then maybe 10 months later when you're maybe going to paint those heads, mm-hmm. that's when it's exciting again. And, it, and in record time, suddenly the thing is jointed, has clothes on it, it's painted, and they're stringing. And yeah. it's like, whoa, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. It happened because of months of finicky finicky work Mm -hmm. and you um so tell me about the sculpting the the 
I can I can imagine uh, the bodies are are very specific, but the heads tend to be are not specific. The, the bodies will have a certain plan that is familiar, whereas the head is a very particular object, right? Well, not right? necessarily. You know, if you look at the old puppet books and, and how many of my uh, contemporaries work, mm-hmm. people have historically had a standard male body, a standard female body, a standard child's body, and mm-hmm. then you put different heads and hands on those. Mm-hmm. And the way I was taught is you design every character mm-hmm. um, and you, you, you design their stance, so, okay. So the profile drawing on the full size thing will have a humpbacked old man right. with his neck jutting forward. And you, you pick a line and you drop it arbitrarily, you eyeball it down the middle of that mass. Mm-hmm. And in an ideal world, if it works out, most of your key joints happen on that line in okay. profile. And that's the shoulder string holds on that line. Right. So when this fully realized three dimensional thing is built and you joint it and string it according to that line, the line of balance. Mm -hmm. Um, When you act the puppet on strings, it'll do whatever you want. But when you relax and just hold it, it will return to its characteristic stance. And so that's, you know, that's Martin Stevens training to me. So I design every single puppet. And I think that's what I love about the marionette is because you have a full body that can convey the information. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't necessarily believe in having to have big heads on marionettes, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, But, you know, when, when sculpting the heads, for example, it's, if it's a show like Penny Plane and there's four duplicates of Penny Plane, Mm -hmm. because every time they change their clothes, you need a whole new puppet. Because the strings go through the clothes. And, and as you know, I, I like changing the clothes on Indeed. them. Indeed. Because, as a friend pointed out years ago, whenever a new puppet walked on stage, he noticed the audience's interest perk up a bit. And mm-hmm. I went, oh, so let's treat it like the human theater. Mm-hmm. She comes in wearing a trench coat, makes an exit, comes back without the coat. Mm-hmm. That's two puppets. But it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Because it's all that illusion. So I, I, I do build a lot of puppets to keep the audience believing that. You know, she's in her 90 all of a sudden. It's not the same puppet. So on those kind of shows, you need duplicates. And so you figure out right at the beginning, are we making molds and casting? Um, And usually we do. On the Daisy Theater, uh, I made up this silly rule just to keep it interesting for me that everything, every head was a direct sculpt, no molds. So at this point, we have three versions of schnitzel, the little fairy. And there's going to be more schnitzels every year. And I'm not going to make a mold. Everyone's going to be hand sculpted. And, you know, why? I don't know. It just (laughs) seems kind of, it kind of shows that I give a fuck. Sure. You yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. And yes, I, I do have the opportunity now to take it to somebody with a 3D printer. Yeah. And they're like, bring the schnitzel head and we'll 3D print it and you can make a mold off that. Or we can just. And I was like, yes, we could. Mm-hmm. And people are going to do that. But for me, I need to know that schnitzel on the tightrope's head just has that little handmade deviation from the other two schnitzels. Right, right, you right, know? right, right. Um, because I need to care that much about the work. Uh, yeah. And what about the clothes? So you don't make them? No. Have you ever made them? Oh, you yeah, must have yeah, when you yeah, were yeah, younger, yeah. right? And that, that's how I sucked my mother into the puppet world eventually. <laughs> you know, I was sewing something badly when I was 14. And she said, oh, give me that. <laughs> and, you know, for the next decade, my mother had to be the seamstress of theater or right, of right. My, my puppets. Right? Yeah. Um, and she set the bar pretty high. 
Um, I'm, I, you know, interestingly enough, I, I'm a pretty good cutter. Mm-hmm. I, I have a pretty good natural eye for that. I don't do it enough and I'm not trained enough to say I could make you a suit or, mm-hmm. or, or a Halloween costume, but I'm pretty good at that. Yeah. Uh, but for 25 years, I've worked with Kim Crosley, who, you know, is my mind reader and takes my designs or my non-designs mm-hmm. and makes the puppet clothes. Yeah. And, and it's been an interesting two and a half decades with Kim because she works at Stratford and she's a real theatrical cutter and costumer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're always negotiating, mm-hmm. you know, because you can't build puppet clothes the way you build people clothes i was gonna say because the bodies now i've there's no muscles inside yeah, there i was gonna say it. yeah you know and i've had to say kim that sleeve is too tight because it's a string in gravity that's going to make that elbow move so right. you know our biggest fight is always because she's so amazing the you know the uh double seamed sleeve mm-hmm. like you would really tailor and i'm like please just put one scene there <laughs> just make it a once you know so we, we negotiate but I, I i did read something only a few years ago by one of my mentors uh in an old puppetry thing and she said um every time you put a seam on a puppet costume you're losing 10 percent of your movement and oh, i thought yeah. that's interesting because yeah. you're putting a hard human scale seam down mm-hmm. there so you know, when there's time, um, and Kim is ferocious. Kim is that person who will work 18 hours a day. Um, she's kind of me in a mm-hmm. scary way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hand sewing and a lot of fitting the clothes right onto the puppet. And it's taken me as a designer forever to learn scale of fabric. Yeah. I was going to ask if they have to scale the stitching as well. I imagine you have. That's to why there's a lot of hand finer. sewing. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I used to use a lot of woolens, a lot and I can't, I can't blame anyone for puppet joints that didn't move other than I was putting human scale <laughs> woolens on them. Right. You know, so now we, we use a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be hemmed. I hate hems because mm-hmm. I hate having that on the puppet. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, on, on Edna Rural, for example, uh, my little Daisy Theater Prairie Widow, mm-hmm. her hers is this horrible nylon synthetic um I think it was a dollar ninety nine a meter in mm-hmm. some bin on Queen West, <laughs> but the delicate lace around her collar and her wrists mm-hmm. is eighty five dollar imported French lace. You know, so no. at, at one point in all of this madness, you are putting really great stuff with really cheap stuff. But like any kind of theater, it's what's working. You yeah, know, what's the scale? And and now I finally feel like I'm. I've got the clothes down. I, I know how to design marionette clothes. And Kim really knows how to build them. Now. Yeah. How do you get um, uh, clothes to flow? Like, do you ever have the problem where they look too stiff? And like, how do you get a dress to sort of train out behind somebody? Well, it's all about that again, about the scale of the actual fabric and, right. and, and you know, what the puppet's going to do in it. You know, I mean, there's some characters, I think, I think from Penny Plain and the Daisy Theater are the really good examples of, of clothes that, that have, I think we really have started to understand. And I'm, I'm giving my cutter fabric that kind of finely works. Right. You know, we used to have a joke that I would get one garment made out of silk velvet only right. per show <laughs> because Kim hates working with silk velvet right. so much. Um, but she would give me one garment of silk velvet, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but we've also added, you know, uh, from 10 Days on Earth, which was before 
Billy Twinkle, I think. Yeah. And 10 Days on Earth was about um, a mentally uh, challenged uh, shoeshine guy. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed that shoes should be important. And so, you know, suddenly I had two great young Canadian theater designers working. I had Cami Koo Mm -hmm. and Robin Fisher Mm -hmm. making puppet shoes. Right. How how the heck did that happen? (laughs) Because shoes were important in that story. Well, They've come back and made beautiful leather shoes for the puppets ever since. Yeah. And and we always have to have those damn shoes now. Yeah. Because it's a thing. Right. right? Um, and I actually love if I look over and see Robin Fisher or Cammy Koo, who's, who, you know, Cammy on the Daisy Theater was designing two shows at Shaw and mm-hmm. was driving in to make puppet shoes, mm-hmm. you know. And I wonder why these people come. Kim, you know, comes in from Stratford. I don't pay enough. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I don't pay anybody what they're worth. And they come and work on my stupid deadlines. And I can only think it's part of that thing I said. It's part of the charm of seeing something that's really crafted, Mm -hmm. you know, and they know I'm going to love it and Mm -hmm. present it to the audience in a way. And and I'm I'm such a monster, actually, about detail Mm -hmm. that people say you'll never see. Well, that's wrong because I I learned a long time ago, if you have great photography and you're at a festival, your little puppet head that's maybe four inches tall will be on the side of a billboard or on the bus that's driving down the city of Melbourne street. I've seen that happen. So I get really good photographs that that are close up. The audience will never see that detail, Mm -hmm. but the camera will selling the show. The other, the, the bigger reason for good craftsmanship is uh, because I'm performing, if I'm looking from my stance above down the strings on the puppet mm-hmm. and I see a blob of hot glue, mm-hmm. we don't use hot glue, by mm-hmm. the way. But if I see a blob of hot glue mm-hmm. or a stitch coming undone, that's all I obsess about. And I'm not in the performance sure. and I'm not doing the character and I'm not working with the, I'm like, fuck, who fucking hot glued that fucking hat on, you know? So to save the performer on stage, I just make sure it goes out as good as it can yeah you know plus it lasts longer if it's built right <laughs> do you do you, and now you used to you said when you were younger you recycled uh, puppets what happens now with your shows do they get archived someplace do you they're all them? in the morgue which is the basement uh below this studio right it's damp it, it <laughs> it's there's yeah they're probably all just rotting and being eaten by mice right now it's kind of that's i mean it's a classic theater thing where you do this ephemeral bit and yeah. then it gets you know, either reused into some other show. Once in a while, people get on this kick of, oh, we have to be in a museum. Well, no. In the reality of Canada today, there's not going to be a puppet museum. And any museums I've offered them to have said, no, don't give them to us. They'll be in a storage bin off-site. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just... But... For me, I, like I just said a few minutes ago, I, I get everything photographed really well. Yeah. I have an art. What I would like is a book, you yeah. know, but everything is photographed beautifully and, and better than it would look hanging maybe even in a museum. Yeah. You know, it's it's had a few hundred performances usually. So it's... It's been seen. It's been seen. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is too, I, I, I don't want to go down there and start cannibalizing again because... Every time I think of a new character, I want to sit at the drafting table and draw it and see it. I want it to be brand new. I want it to be that thing, you know. Um, And now that I'm coming up to another scripted show, I want it to have a... I'm I'm not quite sure what the look is, but I know I've got a few influences happening that are going to sway the design sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm really intrigued to see what that is. But I know it's not... Proportionally, they'll be the same. They'll be in the same scale. Mm -hmm. 
but I think they're going to look just different again. Mm-hmm. You know, so you couldn't pull a puppet from Tinka and Street of Blood and mm-hmm. do a new show with them. Yeah, exactly. And how about the set design? So uh, I'm trying to. Rem- I'm, I'm. I've seen several of the shows, but um, they're not. The puppets are the focus, mm-hmm. right? Without the puppets on stage, it's an empty, hollow thing. But it still has to set the scene, it has to set the mood, it has to tell them where we are. So uh, what's your approach to designing the set? They all tend to be a bit shallower than they would mm-hmm. if it was a human-scale mm-hmm. set. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get inside it and how much do you think you need and how, what do you discard? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the practical things of my career always weigh down first. Mm-hmm. And I always phone my production manager, uh, Terry Gillis, with the same question when I sit down to make a set model. Because I make a lot of really bad cardboard models. Mm-hmm. I'll go through like nine to 18 hot glued <laughs> things because I need to visually, you know, mm-hmm. and then they get thrown away. No one ever sees them. Right. But it's me just kind of 3D going. Eh. Um, but I always have the same question to her. I say, okay, uh, of all the places we played in the world, what's the lowest grid height? Right. Because that's my Waterloo. And then... Uh, the other consideration is I will play theaters that either are raked seating oh, yeah. or uh, the stage is three feet off the ground or there's no stage mm-hmm. or there's no rake or it's a three quarter fan or mm-hmm. it's a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of a touring show mm-hmm. is I never get to design my dream set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to have uh, pretty open sight lines. Mm-hmm. It can't be as high as I want to go, mm-hmm. which kills me because I want to go high. I really want to go. Now high. you said a hundred inches. What was the hundred inch show? That was the that was a penny plane. A penny plane. When that's the highest you've that's been so far. That's the highest I've been. Yeah. And how difficult does it become to manipulate from that distance? Oh, it's it's a different uh, experience because I used to they used to be I used to be on the same playing level as the marionettes. Right. Yeah. So that would be maybe a. Uh, Lord, a travel controller maybe it was fifty-seven inches or something like that. I yeah. don't, I don't remember the exact number, but um, you know, it's it's a little more rock and roll, mm-hmm. and you have to work a little more aggressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minute you get, you know, that far away from the marionette, it's it's terrifying to most people. Mm-hmm. And I had to relearn how to work a marionette, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. It's there's a kind of delayed response and as you're walking or swinging a character in gravity you have to relearn what that thing (laughs) on the bottom of 100 inches of 16 strings Mm -hmm. is going to do but it made it more delicate Mm -hmm. and more um, lyrical Mm -hmm. in a weird way and I I would just keep going higher and higher and higher if I didn't have those damn theater grids to concern myself with. And I do, you know. I mean, that's, you know, even talking about the next show and thinking I'm going to play smaller spaces. Well, a lot of storefront theaters aren't going to have ceiling height. No, so you can't play with a bridge then is what you're saying. Exactly. And if you do, is your bridge 18 inches, is it like a walkway made through the space? You know, so that's where I am right now because I also know it's not going to play the same kind of space every time. Mm -hmm. And so... It's frustrating. And and the other big design thing that I always have to address right away, Michael, is where am I hanging 35 to 40 puppets? Right. Because they have to be reachable mm-hmm. by the guy who's on stage doing the show. Mm-hmm. So I can't really have them off stage. I can't have them too far upstage. They're always going to be seen by the audience as this ghostly Greek chorus in mm-hmm. the back. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've played with 
things of like in the set for Happy, we built um, a raised tier on the set of Happy at the back and made 40 little puppet scale chairs and, oh, right. and, and little metal stands behind them. And the puppets all sat mm-hmm. like sort of a, a chorus in mm-hmm. the back. And, and that's where they were ac- accessed from. Um, and entrances and exits when you have strings, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to have bridges that split up above. So right, so puppets can, can enter, right. but then I have to jump over them. Um, but you know, like anything in design, once I come up with what that set design is going to be, I'm always reminded that it's like anything that... Um, you don't need every paint color. Yeah. You know, you actually are always made better by being limited in a way. And so I think because I'm a touring guy, I probably have been more creative than I would have been if I was just designing one-offs mm-hmm. where I didn't have to worry about it ever moving or or a different venue. All right, we've spoken about clothes and scripts and the set and the puppets themselves. Now we have to, there's a couple other elements that you have to bring in other designers in for, I'm assuming to you. Now, the question I had was, do you uh, write the music and how does uh, the music come into the show? Um, And you have to work with a sound designer as well, is that Mm -hmm. correct? And a lighting designer. And a lighting designer. Um, Do how do you incorporate music into the show and how do you go through that process with your sound? It's interesting because all the shows are so sound and music heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if if you were to say, hey, do you sing? I'd say, no, I'm not a singer. Mm-hmm. And there's so many songs, especially in the Daisy Theater. I'm singing like five or six songs a night. Right, right. But I would never sing a song for you. Right. You know, so, so that's crazy. Um, and a lot of the... Um, Text-based shows have huge sound designs where entire scenes are underscored almost in a cinematic way. Mm-hmm. You know, that started with Kathy Nazati, right. who was the second composer I'd worked with. Uh, a, a guy uh, I'd worked with for years was Ed Connell when we were writing those marionette musicals, and mm-hmm. he was very, very clever. Uh, songwriter for mm-hmm. musicals, and and that was fun. And then when I met Kathy, it, we got into this kind of vocabulary where she just instinctively could throw things at me and I could read a passage of script with it and we'd go, wow, that's, that's underscored. Mm-hmm. And so that worked, you know, I've, I've worked with John Elcorn in the last few shows now, and, um, we've had to find our own vocabulary again, but mm-hmm. what I've learned is with anybody who has a discipline you don't have, don't pretend you have their vocabulary, right? Just be really clear and say, I want this, mm-hmm. you know, or listen to this music. This really inspires me. So something like that. But the minute I've tried to talk like a composer to a composer, mm-hmm. <laughs> it all falls apart. Well, it? it'd be like if somebody was trying to talk about, you know, marionette knee joints to me who'd never seen a marionette yeah. you know you know just tell me what you wanted to do and i'll figure out the best way to do that you know so um there's a lot of music and a lot of sound and um of course because of the reality of touring and the solo performance thing it always has to be recorded mm-hmm. um, and it's you know it's funny i was just thinking of all the different you know Different from real to real to dat, mm-hmm. you know, a dat. Oh my god, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we skipped over dat. That was when the was worst in. mistake the theater yeah. ever made. I'll tell you, um, <laughs> you know, and all the ways music is 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 created. You know, there have been times where we've had, you know, eight 
really great Canadian musicians in a studio recording it. Mm -hmm. Other times it's all been created electronically by the composer. So again, it's all about that, that tone, Mm -hmm. you know, it really, I I remember talking to um, a composer once and I had given them a a pretty good budget back in the day. Mm -hmm. There was one show that had a lot of co-producers and there was a big music budget suddenly. And, and, and we got to hire a lot of musicians and take them into a studio. So when I first heard the passes of the music, I, I, I used a visual design analogy. I said, it's nice, but where's your brown? And the composer said to me, what do you mean? I said, well, if you look at the costume board, because everything was swatched on a board, I said, regardless of where the costumes go in the show, everything has some brown in it. Mm -hmm. That was my thread. And I said, I'm not hearing your brown Mm -hmm. in this score. So that, for me as a designer, was a way to talk to that composer who totally got what I was saying, you know? So I find that in terms of collaboration, I have to find, I have to find that vocabulary about the project, not necessarily our disciplines. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. And then finally, lighting design, uh, it is a different scale. Lighting lighting design, usually we're lighting humans at plus six feet. Mm -hmm. We're here, we're lighting people at plus three feet. Mm -hmm. Um, How, uh, what kind of accommodations do designer, lighting designers have to make to make sure that your puppets look good? Um, and how do they deal with the... I mean, in, in Daisy Theater, you've got your own built-in lighting, don't We you? do, but we use front lighting from the venue as well. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you... Um, I mean... Well, it goes back to that thing about scenic design too, Michael, mm-hmm. because we don't travel with our own lighting rig, right? Yeah. So there's never consistency. So oh I've had to learn over the years when I would pout with the <laughs> lighting guy, right. you know, and go, it didn't look like that. It, it looked different in the last venue. Right, well, right. you know, the grid is now back there or mm. that much higher or the angles are different or the room isn't as long or it's really long and that backlight is hung higher and further back. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had to learn. All of that stuff. And then you sometimes go into theaters and they don't have dream equipment, as we know. And they don't, they can't iris everything down for you. You know, some presenters are cheapskates and won't get the rental package they promise to get. You know, so it's, um, so you have to, you have to decide what your key mood and looks are. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm really good at is color. Right. You know, I can sit and say, that's just too amber mm-hmm. because I know the undertones of the paint jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that I'm good at. I don't have a, a lighting tech vocabulary, so I'm never going to talk that way. But I'm pretty good about saying, bring it up yeah. five points or, you know. Yeah. Uh, Do you say, um Hats are always a problem with design, with lighting designers. Um, do you ever think about how the light is going to fall on your puppets as you build them? And yeah. how important is that to you? You know, when I'm, and it's funny because I'm, uh, I was going to say, a thing I'm known for in puppetry, a thing that probably three <laughs> people know me for in puppetry, which is, you know, in puppetry, that's, that's three pretty people big. knowing you do that thing, that's huge. Yeah, okay? of course, of course. But it was, it was uh, one grand dame of British puppetry who pointed this out because she was teaching puppetry somewhere. And, and, and she pointed out at something that I was doing instinctively, and now I, it's a thing that I do, is I sculpt 
many characters with an open mouth or a speaking mouth, right. you know? And when I'm sculpting, I'm holding that head and moving it around under my work lamp to see when the head goes down, what is that cast? And when it looks up, what changes? So I, 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 I hate animating mouths and eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't do it past the second row. No one's going to see it. Mm-hmm. Throughout my whole career, people have said things like, oh, and when Tinka closed her eyes, I thought it was going to die. Well, Tinka can't close her eyes. I can make the puppet's head go forward. And, you know. Yeah. So I, I do play with planes and, and what they do in the sculpture under my work lamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I find that the, the speaking mouth or an open mouth or a mouth that's in an attitude mm-hmm. conveys a lot more in my scale from the stage than just a, a neutral would. Terrific. All right, let's uh, shift gears for the last sort of section, which I want to talk about your um, the idea of mentorship. It's a very important part of how people are trained in the mm-hmm. theater. Um, did you, uh, you had mentors when you were young, Yeah. when you were uh, uh, just starting out. Um, how important do you feel that is these days? How have you tried to foster these relationships? Um, and well, do you I mean, I'm going to assume you think it's important now. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you decide and what outlets did you have to mentor other new artists? Well, I think, you know, um, this is going to sound odd. I waited for a long time for some odd marionette child Mm -hmm. to find me the Mm -hmm. way I found mine. And I waited for that letter to arrive. Mm Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And then I realized, oh, nobody really wants to make marionettes right now Right in the trajectory I had. I mean, what a lot of younger puppeteers are interested in is my career. Right. How do you get into those venues? How do you get an adult audience? Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't really say, well, you have to start at the beginning and do eight years of birthday party shows and school shows, and then maybe the Fringe Festival will happen, and then maybe you'll meet your contemporaries, and maybe that'll all propel you into the, you know. It sounds a lot like the, I I have a bit of interest in magicians, and they seem to have the same trajectory, where they do kid shows, Mm -hmm. learn how to fool the kids, because it's exceedingly difficult, Mm -hmm. and then only when they get the craft ready, then they're able to go to adult audiences and then relax and then find their actual yeah. voice, right? Yeah, well, because it's all about learning the skills, yeah. right? Um, okay, so to answer your question, so I never did get that fan letter. Yeah. The, what I've had over the past 20 years, which is really interesting to me, is not about puppetry at all. It's been young theater makers finding me mm. and saying, okay, you're, you've created a theater company and you're doing solo work. How? You know, mm-hmm. so young playwrights and young uh, theater makers are the ones who really seek me out with really passionate discussions, mm-hmm. which I find interesting. Um, again, I wasn't seeing it in puppetry. And, you know, I'd said early in our chat that I left puppetry for 18 years. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really in the loop. There is um, there's a thing called the National Puppetry Conference at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut every summer. It, this is their 25th year. Yeah. And, and I had been invited to go there and be a guest artist for so many years and I was always only on tour in June because that's when Europe used to you would go to Europe in the in June Mm -hmm. Uh, so I could never go and and I just said no so often I thought they're never going to ask me again but (laughs) it was begun by a handful of people and one was a great influence of mine George Latshaw he was the first artistic director Um, and 
he he was he was a theater guy you know he wanted puppetry to lift itself up and be elevated mm-hmm. as a theatrical experience for performer as well as the audience so george passed away and the new artistic director uh just kept bugging me. Mm-hmm. And I finally didn't have anything to do a few Junes <laughs> ago. And mm-hmm. I thought, I'll go. Mm-hmm. And I had my suitcase packed and I was out in the back deck. And I lit a smoke waiting for the cab to come get me. And uh, my partner said, so what's this puppet thing you're going? Is it a festival? What? Are you, what? Mm-hmm. And I said, and I explained what it was and that I would be teaching. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really don't want to go to this puppet thing. Mm-hmm. I came back 10 days later, put my suitcase down on the upper deck, and he said, how was it? And I burst into tears Mm -hmm. because I had no idea how much I needed it. Uh, I needed to hear things coming out of my mouth as absolutes and wonder if I really meant that, Mm -hmm. you know? Oddly enough, I'm not teaching these. My strand at the O'Neill National Puppetry Conference is not in the marionette workshop. They have two people doing that. Mm -hmm. It's not in any of the other strands that are offered, I am I am working on creating text mm-hmm. for the puppet theater, how you write solo text. And last year I added another component, which is the interpretation of text. And mm-hmm. I'm very careful to say creation and interpretation of text because the minute you say acting for mm-hmm. puppets, everybody gets a bit <laughs> squeamish. Really? But really what I'm going to do over the course of my time there over the years is I'm I'm going to come up with a syllabus of how to train puppeteers to act, damn it, because mm-hmm. it's the one thing we're missing the most. Mm-hmm. You know, I said earlier that uh, you can't swing a cat without hitting a young puppeteer's face. Well, if they're all going to be on stage, I want to make sure that they have the right to be on stage right. and that they know how to interpret nonverbal uh performance and text through that puppet and and um especially text Mm -hmm. because they're not teaching text for puppets anywhere anywhere right no program that does puppetry teaches text right because it's supposed to be a visual medium fuck that it seems kind of strange i mean you're telling a story i guess the uh, the assumption is you're telling you're telling stories that are already Tales, right? They're well, just sort of taking here's found Here's my text. take always, you know, is, you know, there have been some hair doctors of puppetry and people running various institutes around the world who mm-hmm. make absolute statements. I've made a few absolute statements <laughs> myself in our little chat today, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're absolute statements for Ronnie. Right. Uh, at the beginning and end of my day, I still think puppetry is the most limitless of all the performance uh, experiences. I really believe that. Uh, you can't show me a better route to take in the theater uh, than puppetry. But if it's the most limitless uh, tool as a performance art, why would we, why would any of us say, except puppets shouldn't do this and puppets can't do that? And there's a lot of that that's been going on. Puppets shouldn't talk, puppets right. must never speak. Right. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. If, if the person who is approaching the puppet and animating the puppet loves language and has a facility for communication through language and interpretation of language, why shouldn't that be a tool in their back pocket to use as a puppeteer? You know, some of my favorite puppetry in the world that I would seek out has nothing to do with the kind of puppetry I do. Mm -hmm. My favorite puppet show in the world is a little tiny hand puppet booth with little hand puppets one person doing a hand puppet show is for me the epitome of puppetry. Mm-hmm. It's rustic, it's it's immediate, as personal, you know, it's charming. Mm-hmm. And we know that they don't really have arms 
or real legs. Mm-hmm. And they go up and down stairs on the playboard. That all works for me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not sitting here saying puppetry has to be this lofty thing. But, you know, in my strand at the O'Neill, I've been able to meet a crop. You know, there's all ages there of, of adults. But I would say the, the main group that shows up every June would be, you know, probably early 20s to mid 30s. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the crop. And they're finding each other as contemporaries, which is really fun to watch Mm -hmm. because they don't know that they're going to know each other for the rest of their lives pretty much. So I love watching that. And I love being uh, there as a a provocateur in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, to get them in the room and say, what's your point of view? stop following the herd. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you have to say? And why are you using puppets for this? And let's write it and now perform it for me, mm-hmm. you know, and to see, to see people uh, experiencing stuff for the first time is very interesting. So I always thought, really, I thought some oddball would come in here and do a Ronnie on me and want to mm-hmm. sleep in the studio and use my bandsaw. Not so much that. Not so much that, because uh, the landscape has shifted. They want to be theater makers with puppets. They don't want to do the hand puppet show in schools. And they want to have an adult audience in a legitimate venue right out of the bat. Yeah. You know, so... Good luck. Yeah. Maybe you've created a monster. Like, Well, like- the, that, that doesn't really exist anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Like, my career has shifted. Right, right, So right. that, let's go to the same regionals with a new show right. over an 18-month period, and then let's go to Europe and do that, and then let's build a new show. That circuit doesn't even really exist. And I don't think that's bad, you know? So, um, but like I say, when... I'm not a teacher, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm a practitioner. And I've, I, 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 when I say I'm not a teacher, it's not to, to be disingenuous. I've had great teachers and mm-hmm. I've observed great teachers. So I, I get that teaching is a skill set or a calling even. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bully, really. Mm-hmm. I'm a prodder and a bully um, <laughs> who walks in the room at nine in the morning with really high expectations. You know, that's kind of unfair. Yeah. Uh, but I do that and I do that to myself. But in the, um, you know, in the brief every June experience I've been having at the O'Neill Center as a guest artist or a teacher, if you will, I always come home with more questions for myself. Because I'll find myself saying something as an absolute and then I'll stew about whether I mean that, you know, because the thing is, even with this conversation, I've, I, anytime I've, I've had an in-depth conversation about my work, I'll listen to it maybe three or four years later and go, well, no, I don't know. I don't think I agree with that mm-hmm. anymore because you're always learning and you're always reevaluating. So I just, I'm going to put a little, you know, caveat on this. This is not the ultimate <laughs> thing I'm saying, because hopefully in 10 years, I'll be able to say to you, okay, Michael, I figured that thing out. And this is actually how that works. Um, But I think that's, you know, anybody who stays in the theater, who stays um, slavishly, um, you know, held to having to be in the theater, is always reevaluating your place in it Mm -hmm. because you can never do it all. I can never learn enough skills. I can never learn enough design stuff or building stuff or performance stuff. And even if I just focused on one of those aspects, I wouldn't ever be able to learn it all or to go see all the great scenic design that's been done and Mm -hmm. study that or 
see all the great costume design that's been done and study that or every puppet that's ever been built. So, you know, you just kind of go, my version of it will be this and be influenced by whatever the the parameters and, and foibles of my time are, you know. I think we'll leave it there. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Get out. I'm getting <laughs> leaving. <laughs> And that was puppeteer, playwright, and designer Ronnie Burkett speaking to me from his studio in Toronto. Next time, I talk with designers at the Shaw Festival about the 2015 season. The music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the 1990s called See You by the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com forward slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you send 332 puppet legs for your upcoming production of Duff in the Streets, a conservative scandal. Don't worry, all the strings go back to one man. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. Hand puppet or mouth puppet? Uh, different things. Ah, so hand puppets don't have moving mouths. Hand puppets that mouth puppet is Muppet style or TV style. Or TV yeah. style puppet. Yeah. Okay. Mouth puppet sounds too dirty, but I like to... <laughs> you mouth puppet. Mouth puppet. I know. <laughs>